Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. I'm Val, a black mom from North Carolina. And this is part five of our re-release of Between We and They. The final episode in the series from back in 2019. If you haven't heard the other episodes, go back and listen to them first. Then come back and rejoin this one. Also, you get bonus conversation from Andrew and I as we really dig into our thinking around the episode and what we learned. So please stick around until the end. Absolutely. Enjoy. Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. This is the final episode of Between We and They, a school integration story, and it's a bit of an epilogue. I caught up with Beth recently as her second year at their new school was starting to see how she was doing. Her district, like many urban districts, is confronting declining enrollment and beginning talks about school closure, school consolidation, and a possible redrawing of boundaries. But first, Beth saw some things over the summer that made her think that white and privileged parents are starting to think and talk about her school as a hidden gem. A school that their crowd hasn't discovered yet, but that once they do, they may flock to. And this concerns her. Oh my God, I hate to even say it, that my girl's school might be a hidden gem. It kills me to say that. And I worried and I wondered about it for the whole first year, and I... I just finally faced that fact. Beth worries that she inadvertently enrolled her daughters in an anomaly, a good school that just happens to be poorly rated. It's a funny thing to feel bad that a school is good, that it is a gem, hidden or otherwise. Beth isn't feeling guilty about taking spots from other children. Her school is under-enrolled, and she certainly isn't upset about the school actually being good. She's grateful. It's just the implications for the future. There was a post last week, and this is what got me going on this. There is a parent there. I believe she's white. I don't know who she is, but she talked about, she just talked it up. I don't know that she used the expression hidden gem, but she really talked it up. The principal's amazing. The teachers are great. It's been wonderful for my kid. And it's as soon as privileged parent, white parents hear more about it. She, these are not her words, but basically the message I got was privileged parents hear about this. There will be an influx of parents right now. It's a trickle of white privileged parents, but there will be an influx as soon as more parents hear about it. And so I just feel like a fraud and just kind of horribly guilty if I am the one who's leading the charge to gentrify this school. Like, oh my God, it kind of makes me sick to think about. Schools that get marked as hidden gems often see that massive influx of white and or privileged families that the social media poster was excited for. Beth, having attended a school made up of mostly white and or privileged families, sees danger in that. Danger to the existing school community, danger to the culture and values of the school, and danger that, once a school's reputation changes, the demographics can very quickly change as well. And she could find herself holding on to a resource, a seat at that school, that becomes something people are trying to hoard. Just thought, you know what, if I'm the first one to gentrify this school, then I absolutely will take responsibility for all those gem-collecting white people who come after me. I, I feel like my responsibility is to the school and the school community. And I'm sorry, I don't know how to say this diplomatically, but to take responsibility for the, the white and privileged people who come after me, work, work, work with them. You know, like you're here now, let's, let's be here responsibly. Let's not try to take over the PTA. Wait a minute, there's three of you white people who want to be the, the PTA board? No, 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 we don't do that here. 
You know what I mean? Like, so speak up about that. Like, that is where I feel like then I'm going to start to become more and more active. You know, because right now I feel like I want to support the, the school. You know, I'm not here to like direct it. So my responsibility, I feel like, will be to tend to the privileged people who come and want to take over and think this is not running right and running well and should be this and should be that and let's start this and let's do that. You know, like that's going to be my quote-unquote job. That's how I see it. So if if I am starting this wave of gentrification, like so be it. I'll accept that. But, you know, at least I got to try to do this better or in a just way. Best school needs more students. And if some portion of those arriving bring more privilege with them, then that could push back on the concentration of vulnerability that exists at her school. But how those people show up matters. And Beth feels a need to protect her school. Protect it from the insidious, often well-meaning ways that new, white, or privileged families can take over a school. A takeover that reorients the power dynamics and remakes the school culture in a white image of what a good school is. Her under-enrolled school needs more community members. It doesn't need more saviors. Beth spent the last year keeping a low profile at her daughter's school, trying to minimize the impacts that her privilege brings. Being in the school has given her a firsthand view of many of the inequities of our educational system, and so she finds herself channeling much of her energy at the district level, at the policies that have created and support these inequities. Partnering and getting involved with advocacy groups of color, she is now one of many people who are talking about the disparities between schools. As her district begins to consider what to do about declining enrollment, this feels like a more comfortable way for Beth to get involved. I mean, I think because I have a different investment in the schools now, I have been drawn into, felt compelled to, and I've taken an interest in uh, getting involved in the school district. And so what's going on here, and I think it's not unique to our district, is that we're losing kids I think to other districts, displacement, gentrification, charter schools, and therefore the district has taken on this process of investigating, figuring out how to close schools. So our school is, I think, the least enrolled elementary school in the whole district. So it is under consideration for closure and or consolidation. So this may directly affect us. And it's significant to note that our school has the highest, if not one of the highest percentages and, num- and number of African-American students, and it is the least enrolled school, elementary school in our district. And so it only makes sense to close those under-enrolled schools. It's not just her school, but several schools on the, quote, bad side of town that are being considered for closure or consolidation. And so I've you know, joined other people in the district, other parents, um, community members in the district who do not want just these schools to close. We believe that we need to know our history and how the schools got this way was no accident. And it needs the, the burden of school closures should not fall on the, the black and brown kids and the kids living in poverty. I just have become a little more involved in attending and speaking at speaking publicly at, at school board meetings, joining groups and participating in groups and evening meetings and strategizing and, you know, do, doing what I can. I participate as an active listener a lot. When I can speak up, I try to. It just feels like an injustice to close those schools without acknowledging and understanding how they got to be that way. 
Beth's district was engaged in community conversations as part of their efforts. She attended two of these meetings in her white-privileged neighborhood at the end of last school year. just wanted to hear how people were considering this, the school closure process and how it might impact them and just, just hear what the community was saying. And I had an intention to say something because I, I anticipated the message coming from the, the white and more privileged people. So I kind of prepared some ideas, talking points, and I went to the first meeting expecting there to be about 20 people there. It was in an elementary school library that was packed with, I'm guessing, 150 parents who were just irate at the idea that the school district would consider busing their children across town. Now, keep in mind that nobody had even mentioned busing, but somehow we're going to start talking about busing. Their argument is like, our school is functioning really well. We are at capacity. We're full. They can't even consider, why would they consider closing our school? Why would, who would we merge with? Who would we consolidate with? And if they do consider closing our school and busing our kids to the other side of town, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to leave. And so the comments that I heard were horrifying, honestly. And at certain couple of points during this first meeting, it felt, the parents felt like an angry mob you know, raising their hand, but shouting at the same time, let me know when the district makes their decision because I need to start saving money now for private school. Just all kinds of comments. I I made a decision to not say anything because these parents scared me. (laughs) I didn't know any of them, but they knew each other. So you'd have a comment about busing and we're not going to do this. And why would you shut our school down? And then it would be like an uproar of applause and, and yeah, that's right. And it just felt like an angry mob at some point. So I just kind of observed with my jaw on the ground and left there really kind of shaken. And I still feel like I don't even have words for it, but I just felt like, was, was this 1960? Was I back in 1955? Like, yeah, I guess it's one thing to sort of read about it and see the videos, but to, to be witness and to feel the energy in the room, it just felt horrifying to me. It really kind of shook me. She was horrified by the vitriol and the anger. Some of it felt explicitly racist, but perhaps the scarier part was the less explicit, but no less dangerous rhetoric. No, it was, it was a lot of coded, coded language. Their school, and if, if their school is the problem, why don't they fix their school? Our schools are fine. And then you'd have the more, say, veiled comments. Like, if we have to go to another school, guys, like, just, you know, we'll band together. We'll make the school better. We make it what it is. You know, and it was just like, ugh. Is that supposed to be a better way to look at this? Um, so no, it was just a lot of veiled racism. It's us and them and their school. And, and, and here's the thing that I just it was clearly lost on everybody. Like These are white parents who I think for the most part were not bust when they were kids or teenagers. They were not bust. It was the black and brown kids' school on the other side of town that were shut. Those schools were shuttered, and the, and the kids in the predominantly black and brown communities were bused to the white schools and were made to feel unwelcome and had to enter hostile environments with teachers who did not reflect their culture and their language at the very least, never mind like the straight-up racism that they encountered here. So, so something was just so profoundly missing from this conversation. It was just so jarring to me. It just didn't feel rooted in reality. That that's how I kind of left this these meetings. Like this is we're not even in they're not even operating in the same reality. 
The reality that allowed the parents at these meetings to say these things and applaud others who say these things is a reality in which segregated lives are the norm, in which we refers to a narrow sliver of people sharing our bubble, the bubble that shields us from truly understanding and caring about what happens to them. It it really kind of hit me hard. And I I don't, yeah, I don't mean to sound naive about it, but I feel like maybe a part of me felt like slapped in the face or just kind of sucker punched with this meeting. Like it really affected me. I I felt like kind of on the verge of tears, like, and it wasn't, it wasn't just sad tears. It was just horrified and outraged and just kind of overwhelmed with feeling, with emotion. Felt kind of hopeless. Yeah, really felt kind of hopeless. And honestly, I'm thinking about the third graders that I had been working with all year. You know, like these parents, these white privileged parents are talking about kids that I know and I care about. That's who they're talking about. How dare they? How dare they? They don't know these kids. And I, goodness, I don't know these kids either, but I feel a connection to them. And they're bright and they have potential and they are working their asses off and You know, like, how dare these parents speak like that about those, quote-unquote, those kids, you know? I I just felt kind of enraged about that. They are talking about my kids, and they are talking about my family. And they're talking about my school and kids that I adore, quite frankly. They're talking about my kid's school that they have never looked at in a photograph, never mind walked in there to to see what's happening in there. I just, yeah, I just thought, like, the nerve of them. So it just, it just, I had such a strong emotional response to these meetings that I attended. Um, and I even feel it now. My heart is racing. I feel like a little bit lightheaded. <laughs> just like, I just feel the, emo- the all the emotion kind of rushing again. Being on the inside of their new school gave names, faces, personalities, hopes, dreams to what these white and or privileged parents were denigrating. Those meetings were unsettling, demoralizing, infuriating, and they left Beth questioning the value of pursuing more integration at the policy level. So so I had a few reactions, you know, personal reactions. And one was like, oh my goodness, how on earth could I sleep at night advocating for integration in this city or wanting integration in this city? I would never want to send black and brown kids to this white privileged school. I didn't even want my brown, wealthy kids to be in the school with those kids. I just felt like, how, what am I doing? What can I, how can I do this work? And I'm not saying I was having a significant impact. I don't want to overblow my importance in what I was, what, whatever I was doing in the, you know, quote unquote, doing in the district. I just felt like I needed to back off and kind of reassess. So in some ways, I absolutely understand why the, the parents on, on the other side Hell no, they don't want to integrate their kids. Hell no, they don't want to send their kids to these schools over here. Absolutely. I absolutely 100% support that idea and their uh, conviction. Like, we are not sending our kids to that school. They're going to be treated hostily, you know, disciplined unfairly. They're going to be perceived as criminal and older than they are and hostile. You know, like all these things, all those stereotypes. That's how we're how those black and brown kids are going to be perceived and hell no they're not they don't want to send their kids there and I 100% support that and then it just it just sort of got me looking at this in, in a deeper way and that is like these two very entrenched positions neither one wants to school their kids with the other and one group the white privilege group they don't want to do that out of fear 
And that fear is not based in reality. You know, what I identify as fear and hysteria is, it's just, it's simply straight up racism on the part of white people. I think these people don't even feel like they're being racist or holding racist beliefs. But ultimately it's not about their intention, it's about the impact always of what they say and how they say it and the way it lands. And the other group, the black and brown group, they don't want to do, you know, again, I'm speaking in generality and I don't know, really, I don't know what the heck I'm talking about, but this is how I started to see this. But they, but they don't want to integrate their kids. They don't want their kids to go to school on the other side of town as well. But their fears are based in reality and based in experience, their own experience. And that's true. Beth has upended her family life, her social world, and added hours of driving to her day for the sake of not supporting segregation. She spent the past few years feeling appalled at the resource hoarding at their old school, the opportunity monopolies that are made for and by white and privileged families and that continue to benefit them. She has spent the past 18 months thinking of little else. She's invested her family in this. But through this investment, Beth has come to see more nuance. She finds herself starting to speak up, worrying less about avoiding offense and more about advocating for justice. But she also finds herself questioning if she can responsibly be an advocate for integration. But what is the other option? And I feel like as a mixed person, you know, in a mixed family with multi-ethnic kids, like I kind of feel like, how can I advocate for the separation of people? Like, where would we be? You know, it's almost like this existential crisis. Like, where would we be? Where would my girls be? Because they don't fit in one side and they don't fit in the other. So where would be, we be? So it's almost like integration like this. The way I think about this is like I am trying to create a space for me, somebody who's not black or white, not brown or white, you know, like somebody trying to create a space for me and trying to create a space for my family and for my girls, you know, in this very polarized city, very polarized issue. Beth understands a little of why some black or brown parents do not support school desegregation. It's often been so brutal for their families. But she also believes that integration is how her mixed-race family can fit into her city and into America. Holding these beliefs at the same time is no easy task. She's feeling the tension between desegregation and integration. The efforts in her city and the ways in which they are being discussed are about desegregation, the moving of bodies, a focus on numbers, and the continuation of existing power structures. And this leaves Beth feeling uncertain about their value, at least in the short term. But she does remain steadfast in the belief that true integration, a focus on creating new forms of shared power, of finding shared humanity through being in community, is imperative. Not colonization, not gentrification, but meaningful integration. And to achieve that, we can't go about it in the ways we have in the past. I mean, I feel like it needs, it absolutely needs to be white and privileged people stepping up, really stepping up, doing the work, having the tools to enter schools that they would not choose. I think it's really time for us, those people, to do that work and to do it well and to do it right and to keep doing it after they make mistakes, after we make mistakes. It just be there, show up and make an effort every single day. Make an effort to belong, to be a part of the community, not take it over, not run it the way you think it should be run, just, just be there and try to build some bridges and have some relationships with people. 
because for generations, it's been the opposite. White and privileged people fighting integration, fighting going to a different school, a black and brown school, doing it so poorly, acting hostily and violently towards the black and brown kids who do come to their schools. Like, yeah, I mean, it's it's a gross understatement to say there's been a, a breach and it's up to the one who made that breach, who caused the disruption, to fix it. So it really is up to us to fix it, to repair it, to do the work, to build the trust, to repair it. In order to fix this, I feel like white and privileged people need to listen and we need to be in community with and partner with and follow the, the existing community, black and brown community and families who are already at this school, have already been doing the work of, of fighting for their kids. And I think that when we enter these schools, we need to be humble. And this is not about saving other people or other communities. And this is not the magic of my privileged kids. It's This is not about imposing our agenda and our privilege and our white norm beliefs onto this school that we're entering. And hopefully if we can do this better, that we can build a new understanding of what community means. It's gonna take a lot of time because there are many, many reasons why black and brown communities should not trust us. Uh, we've given them generations of examples and uh, they have very good reason to not trust us. So it's gonna take time for us to work to build trust. And I don't, and, and that's generational work. I don't, it's not going to be like, oh, by the time my girls are done with elementary school, it'll be better. It'll be so much better. It really is generational work. I see that there's no other way around it. This, we have to do the work now because we've created the damage. We really have. I mean, I, we're, we're in this together. We live, we live in the same city. We're in the same school. We, we are in the same country. It's about building a better society, building a better community, building a stronger community and society. This entire experience, from growing more and more uncomfortable at the former school, to making the move to the new school, to getting involved with the district, it's been one of reshaping community, reforging how Beth sees her family belonging, or not, in her city. It's been a profound shift between we and they. Living in a largely white and privileged neighborhood, Beth and her family felt, for the most part, that they belonged there. The girls had friends. Beth had friends. They had a community. And the fact that they were a mixed Asian family didn't seem to matter, at least not too much. But the disparities between the schools in her district and the opportunity hoarding that she saw at her daughter's school grew insufferable. She saw how the parenting around her was creating a sense of entitlement in her girls, that they deserved all the extras that the kids across town didn't have access to. Beth began to feel like she didn't really fit in with this community. She wasn't so sure she wanted to. She began to feel a little less weeness with her neighbors. After the Ferguson riots and the 2016 elections, she started to really grapple with how America values, or doesn't, the people who live here. The past few years have only added to her belief that the way we define who belongs, who we are, is intolerably, oppressively narrow, and it has monstrous consequences. It is this thinking that has led us to be increasingly divided and segregated, and being in a bubble grants us distance from the effect of it on a daily basis. 
being in a bubble limits our we. One place where Beth felt that she could do something was in the choice her family made around school. She didn't delude herself that she would be curing racism in the U.S., but she could at least not support segregation, not support opportunity hoarding. Switching to the school across the interstate was a chance to build a different kind of we for their family now, and especially for the girls as they became adults. At the new school, Beth found herself in a community that she did not at all feel of. At the beginning of the year, she referred to the PTA parents as them. She felt pity for the financial resources they didn't have. She noticed the school's different rules, different rhythms, different ways. Beth couldn't help but compare the old school and the new school. She focused on the differences as a way to understand the decision she made. And while this was an important step in Beth's understanding of her old school, her new school, and herself, much like pity, she ultimately found that the focus on differences was distancing. Centering her own experience in an attempt to understand others couldn't get her all the way to being in community. She couldn't ignore the differences, to pretend that we are all the same and erase or minimize the real ways in which her life on the other side of the interstate was different. But having acknowledged these differences, she's now learning to find a way through them, to appreciate the school on its own terms, to find the joy in what the community is, all the messy, complicated, wonderful things that go along with being with other people. This felt like a step beyond fitting in to actually belonging, not only recognizing the ways we're different, but seeing how those pale in comparison to all the ways we are alike. This finding of shared humanity led Beth to a much broader and more inclusive we. Through the relationships she was making, she found herself caring for individuals and for the school much differently than she had at first. Pity slowly gave way to empathy. They started to feel a little bit more like we. But while she worked to build relationships at the new school, she was also losing them at the old one. Her decision to change schools was met with a deafening silence from her neighbors. This was painful for Beth, and she found herself wanting distance. They no longer really felt like her community, her we. Throughout the year, Beth wondered if her mixed-race identity made integrating any easier. She was used to ambiguous we's. She even found some comfort in the familiarity brought by being in between. But this identity also seemed to make it easier for her old friends to push her away. The community meetings in her neighborhood only cemented the distance she felt from her old neighbors and cemented her sense of we, or at a minimum hope for we, on the other side of the interstate. Since those meetings, a few neighbors have reached out to Beth, asking questions and wanting to talk about equity and segregation. The seeds she planted by her choice are finally starting to sprout. And so, here... As Beth embarks on her second year at the school on the other side of town, she's actively working to redefine her we. She's thinking differently about how to be in the world so that she might be part of building a different world. In many ways, it's a small act choosing a school for your kid. Beth's family is one among tens of millions, but tens of millions of small acts can add up to something monumental, radical, revolutionary even. In the powerful words of Professor David Kirkland, this country is to endure, what we have to resolve this question about how we collectively can create a society that does not just benefit the few, but benefit all. And I do think that that is a question. It's a big question, but it is not an insurmountable question. It's a question that we can collectively grapple with and collectively address. And I do believe that those parents who decide to join in the project of power sharing, join in the project of bringing people together around collective empowerment 
in order to rethink how we do schooling in this country. I do believe that those parents will gain benefits for their kids that they cannot even imagine. And, and, and I do believe when some parents begin to make that decision, not only will they help to create better education systems for their kids, they'll be responsible for making better education systems for all kids. Their efforts will become the model uh, by which we will frame our future. That is the future Beth is thinking of as she works to redefine we for her kids. For all kids. Because those kids grow up to be adults. The next generation of teachers, politicians, police officers, parents. This is generational work. So, Val, five episodes. What did you think? I thought it was incredible to experience the the type of decision making, the type of analysis, the type of reflection in real time of a parent who was making a decision to choose integrated spaces and to do so in a way that was as thoughtful as possible in terms yeah. of the type of school that I select and not wanting their privilege to continue to cloud their experience, even at this school where it was possible to do that. I think it was a fascinating listen to to be on the other side of that. Yeah. Continue to just be so grateful that Beth and Nadia and Maya were all willing to yeah. put themselves out there with yeah. a little bit of anonymity, but still, it feels like a lot. It feels like a lot. And yeah. the tricky part about it is... I think that, you know, when, when the whole story gets told, hmm. you know, it doesn't feel like Beth ends up in racial nirvana, that she has, like, solved all the problems in the world. She's still in this really kind of in-between space, even about advocating for integration or not on the micro level. But I think if you were to just listen to, like, episode two, mm-hmm. you know, she's in a pretty different place than she was even at the end of the series and certainly than she is now. And so I think right. it's easy to imagine somebody kind of taking that that one episode out of context. I think... For me, hearing Beth reflect on what her old students' parents and caregivers like would think about her decision, I think that was also fascinating and spoke to the amount of pressure that one feels in making the decision that, you know, quote, would be best for their kids. And in that instance, aligning with whiteness or privilege or or whatever. And so the school decision isn't just about the kids, it also impacts your social groups and the people that you hang around and um, your maybe social status. And I would hope folks follow Beth's model and continue to talk about that just to normalize that. Because, you know, quite frankly, I'm like, of course the the black school's fine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's fine. Why wouldn't it be be fine? And it's probably a little frustrating that that statement has to be normalized amongst white and our privileged people that there was that there was such an expectation that it wouldn't be fine right 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 so like i mean like the privileged and white folks do have to normalize that and it shouldn't have to be that way either so yes of course it would of course it would be fine i said my kids there i love my kids too you know and so um it's it's interesting that it needs to be normalized and and it and it does need to be normalized yeah the world the world we wish we lived lived in is not the world we actually live right in. i don't know you know thinking about also just the ways that the world is kind of a different place you know this was 2019 it was pre-pandemic it was yeah. pre-george floyd it still feels very relevant mm-hmm. there's something about the ways that we were 
and, and in some ways continue to be isolated through the pandemic that has made kind of severing those ties feel like less of a leap mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. than I think they were at the time when when Beth had to make that choice. Yeah. To that point, to that point where it seems like it is, um, it's a different world. My own children have attended multiple schools, like in elementary school, just trying to find the school that would do the less har- least amount of harm and help them the most. And I'm wondering, just in saying that, if white and privileged parents consider that annual assessment, like, is this school still good for my right. kids, right? And as they develop in their critical consciousness or their racial literacy, like, not being afraid to make the change Right. When it happens, like when you need it. Right. Because I wouldn't hesitate. Like if the schools that my kids are going to next year prove to be bad for them in the first semester, we need to find an alternative. Right. Like Mm. we need to go. And is that something that you think happens? Um, I don't I don't think so. And that's really it's really interesting you say that because there's a way in which. It like takes a little bit of the pressure off of your choice. Mm. And I know so many people who would be like, oh, yeah, like this school didn't turn out to be what it is. But like, I just can't uproot my kids. I can't take them out of school in, you know, second grade or in mm-hmm. third grade or they've mm-hmm. like gotten to know the community. And, and I think that's real. Oh, you know, I'm like, really worried about that. I worry about yeah, that there, all the time. Mm-hmm. There, there is something definitely true about like, you know, and I think different kids in different ways. But I think, you know, particularly Maya who, you know, she had this the great analogy about like the couch and and how sometimes you get a new couch and you just takes you a long time to get used to the new couch and mm-hmm. she just doesn't like change. Mm-hmm. And so like making a change for her is is a big decision mm-hmm. and there is cost to that obviously. Mm-hmm. But I think I don't know there's something about the way that and and I don't know where these messages come from, but like it, changing schools is is somehow feels like failure. Right. Like you didn't do enough of your homework originally. You didn't have enough, you know, fields in your spreadsheet of ranking schools. You didn't talk to the principal for long enough that there's this idea that like if you if you're doing it right, if you're a good parent, that you will do enough work ahead of time Mm. to find the quote right school. And I think lead us to this like place where it feels like a really super high stakes decision. Mm. The messaging is that if you have to change schools, it's because you didn't do a good job. That's so fascinating. Rather than a sign of like personal growth or like now, I mean, the idea that you could know anything about a school without actually being a part of the school community is like a little bit crazy. It I goes mean, back a lot to this of idea it. of touring and stuff, right? <laughs> it's um, a lot of so it like, weird. <laughs> clearly, if you show up in the school, it's going to be different than whatever you thought. That is so, I mean, that's fascinating. I didn't think that was where you were going to go with that thought um, at all. Because for me, it really is hey, you know, we've investigated enough here to see that my kids' needs won't be met. We've tried, like, changing teachers. I've tried getting involved. You know, they're not, like, really listening to our concerns. I think it's probably because, in my mind, I'm assuming that every public school will have things that we really love and things that we don't really love. And it's kind of, like, balancing that out. So can we get more of what we love than less of of what we love, right? And enough more of what you love that it's worth the cost of changing because there right. that is not free. Like that does have an impact on the kids. Right. Yeah. And every time we've changed schools, I've told my kids, we're changing the school because we need to find a better school for you based on these things, right? right. But again, we've always gone to like neighborhood schools. So right. this is a school in the neighborhood. Um, in order for us to change schools, we got to change neighborhoods, you know, and 
having just really transparent conversations with the young people about their experience and, you know, just our own observations of how we're treated in the school. Like, it feels high stakes that they are not damaged by school. Right. Not that I have the exact right school to put them in a position to be above another kid, whether it's in right. college admissions or anything else, right? Right. So, I, I mean, I feel like the the kind of takeaway is like, it's no big deal to change schools. No big deal. Which, which I think there's something in that. And, like, I, I worry about th- how that message gets heard in white and privileged communities, mm-hmm. which is like, if the school's not meeting my needs, if the school's not mm. doing what I say mm-hmm. I need the school to do, then I'm just going to take my mm-hmm. white high test score getting you know, privileged kid who comes with a bunch of fundraising <laughs> potential and take them to some other school. And I'm going to, you know, so like we also have that, like, how do you, how do you square that with the like, show up, listen, speak up, stay put <laughs> adage of, of integrated schools? So I'm thinking about that cultural capital. And so if a white and privileged person is like, I'm taking my PTA, I'm taking my high test scores, that doesn't say, carry the same weight to me as it would for maybe other folks that think that is important because the the community that I want my kids in is one that those things are less valuable. So in, in that, like hearing the message of the school isn't working for me, I think if it centers those things that we described versus centering like your kids having a, a well-rounded education where they get to engage with diverse learners and develop their critical thinking and affirm the dignity and humanity of all people and you know, are able right. to talk comfortably about any topic across difference. I mean, that's what I'm looking for. So if that doesn't meet your needs, Godspeed. Well, so but like if every if every white or privileged parent who feels like I need the school to do exactly what I want leaves the public school system, we don't have a public education yeah. system. If white and privileged parents continue, because let's not pretend that they aren't, right? If they continue to make the choice to not put their kids in public schools then we will see the end of public education. And also, they can't hold it hostage with just getting what they want. And I think that's what I appreciated about Beth, who was very thoughtful about how she showed up and how she continued to show up. And I love the part when she was like, yeah, we're going to do extra vocabulary or Khan Academy, but, you know, I'm just not that parent. Me either, Beth. Me either. I think the quest or the desire, again, to have your kid better than. It's just something like you have to constantly examine and like, what does that actually mean? And what does that cost? Yep. You know, I, I disagreed with a decision Beth made because I made a different one for my child in terms of gifted and talented. My youngest, we knew that a traditional program would be difficult to keep her engaged, right? And and not to not to push her ahead, but literally to keep her engaged. And so we went to a dual language program. In the dual language program, she's excelling. We're like, dang it, like, what do we do now? And again, this was a whole school move. So my son had to move schools too in order to like, so in order to get into the school, we had to move into the neighborhood to get, you know, and everybody had to go. And we're in the dual language program in kindergarten. They're like, we can't help her. Like she literally needs to skip the rest of kindergarten and go straight into first grade. And so at that point, we felt like if we did not make that choice, she would be disengaged and we would lose her in a different way. Right. I firmly believe that every teacher should be certified, gifted, and talented. I believe that we have 
gross underrepresentation of recognizing giftedness in every child, right? So like this is not something that should be separated. And um and yeah, and so that's tough. And I that's right. tough. I didn't I didn't think of it as and I appreciate Beth's reflex, reflections. It made me, you know, stop and pause and think of my own. Like I didn't think of it as a privileged parent, you know, trying to take advantage of the system. But talk a little bit about the about the stakes because yeah. that's what feels somewhat different to me is like this idea. I and mean, I think Beth talks about feeling like that everybody was just constantly trying to like push her kids up the ladder mm-hmm. yeah. in a way that probably wouldn't be the experience for your kids mm-hmm. because they're black. Oh, absolutely. Thankfully, we had teachers who recognized like, hey, she's not like being disrespectful. She's literally already got this. She's bored and we need to do something right. else for her. It was a gift to have a teacher to recognize that in a little black girl's face. Cause I don't think every black kid, brown kids gets that benefit of the doubt. Right. I think the answer is detracking wherever we can, but in the system that we currently have, the best thing for my kid to keep her engaged in school was to say yes to that, you know, opportunity. Right. I don't know that you and Beth making different decisions there is like actually a sign of different values in some yeah. way. It's a sign of like different circumstances because as like Heather McGee would say, this zero sum mindset is really problematic and it mm-hmm. drives so many, so many problems. But mm-hmm. in some ways, when it comes to limited resources like gifted and talented, they are somewhat zero sum. And so mm-hmm. there's a, a way in which opting out from that potentially creates more space for kids like your kids. Mm-hmm. So we, in the intro, we talked about integrated schools like theory of change of contemplate Mm -hmm. desegregate integrate advocate and that was sort of like Beth's journey which seemed to fit nicely in the era of integrated schools that was largely kind of white and or privileged people talking to white and or privileged people as a black woman like what did you I mean you've mentioned some of it but what did you take away from from the story and how does that kind of relate so Beverly Daniel Tatum has the this anecdote about racism being a moving walkway. And so you get on there um, and if you're walking with it, you are walking toward racist ideas and, you know, you have to actively be anti-racist by walking in the opposite direction. So I traveled recently. I'm like, let me try this out. (laughs) (laughs) Let me try walking the other way on here. And what I recognized in being terrified of walking in the opposite direction while people were on that moving walkway was just a clear understanding of the way whiteness and or privilege grips people that I am learning and understanding more with each of these conversations that I have with Mm. you and with other white folks, right? Because, and we've talked about this before, I've never had to like go against my family. I've never had to go against my neighbors. I've never had to do that additional lifting in my fight against racism. I've always had a community, you know, so if I'm walking the wrong way on the, on the walkway, folks are walking with you. I got people with me. Yeah. People that I love. Right. You know? And so listening to Beth, I feel the more I think about it, like more liberated, I feel in that, like, that's, that's not my reality. I'm already on the outside. Right. So I don't have to worry about losing every social connection when, when I'm doing this. And so it's, it's been helpful to continue to build empathy in me and understanding why folks are so afraid of doing it. Right. Like that used to frustrate me, right? right. Like, why are you so afraid to do this? It's the right thing to do. It's obviously it's the right obviously thing to do. It's obviously the right thing to right. do. And, you know, like people inch around it. They take lifetimes to like take some action, you know, and that can be frustrating. That can be frustrating to someone who knows that 
it's the right thing to do. And once you're doing it, it's the easy thing to right. do. And what I appreciate about Beth's journey throughout the episodes is that she recognizes like, yeah, this was hard. And yeah, my kids are going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's liberating, right? Like, like, I mean, that yes. piece of it feels so real. That, that's the piece that's sort of been the most resonant to me in revisiting these episodes. You know, obviously I think there's, there's this like broad idea of collective liberation that like no one's free mm-hmm. until everyone's free. And I think, you know, that's like a piece of this, but that feels much bigger than just like the kind of smaller scale liberation that is setting aside whiteness. There is something that is freeing, I think, in in leaving that behind and in the knowledge that ki- your kids are going to be okay, that actually the school was, was be better. Great. Your kids are probably going to be better <laughs> yeah. off for it. And like, yeah, you, you can kind of set aside this. And that, I mean, to tie back to what you were talking about earlier about like, you know, the difference between getting a, a good education and a better than education, right? Like that, right. It, that if your goal is to get ahead, it's never ending. There's no point where you can rest because somebody nope. else is also trying to get ahead. And so if mm-hmm. your like goal as a parent is to make sure that your kid is better than somebody, anybody, it, it's relentless. It's never ending. Yep. And, yep. and as soon as you can sort of say like, wait a minute, like we actually all can be okay. Yeah. There, there is liberation in that. I remember you talking about, as a white kid in a predominantly black and brown space, the white kids feel a sense of liberation there too. They can be more of themselves because they're also not forced to fit in. And just because everyone is going to school in limousines and (laughs) they don't have one, right? Like there are more ways to be. There are more ways to be. Yeah. And embracing that particular thing when you're already, you know, just understanding like you're uniquely you in this space right. you know? and everybody else is also uniquely them. Yeah. I do think that there's, there's power in that for the, for the kids as well. So yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, the liberation is kind of on both levels. And mm-hmm. we obviously talked about Beth's racial identity and her kids' racial identity and thinking sort of about, about Beth's journey since we finished recording. Mm-hmm. That has been a big part of, of her journey as well. And I think for her kids, the kind of like in-betweenness, mm-hmm. trying to figure out where do they fit in these racial dynamics. So, so I think mm-hmm. for them, that's always been part of their you know, experience. For a white kid in an all-white space, there, there's, there's never any question of there being multiple mm. ways to be, right? It's like always mm-hmm. here is this kind of like one standard yeah. normed way to be. And that that definitely feels feels repressive. Yeah. Yeah. Those are those are my main takeaways. I appreciate all that Beth shared and also that her young people shared with us. And I hope listeners really do know, you know, for me, like as you are evolving, take your children with you. Yeah. That's such a great point. And I think getting to hear those the little slivers of the conversations that she was having with her kids way back then. And we touched base with Beth in preparation for this and got some updates from her. And she said that has been really a huge piece of mm-hmm. of their experience since then is having these conversations about the in-betweenness, having these conversations about what does it mean to be multiracial? What does it mean to not fit neatly into any one box that, mm-hmm. that our kids struggle with? You know, they, they struggle with mm-hmm. in, in their current schooling experience. But, you know, Beth said that, that she never had those conversations growing up. And so right. even just to be able to, like, create some context for her kids. So her, her oldest now, Nadia, is going into eighth grade. And her, her middle school, where she's been for the past couple of years, one year was all virtual because of the pandemic. Right. But she just had finished a year there. And, and, it was, and it was hard. The school she's in has a magnet school. So this 
from the outside an incredibly diverse school internally incredibly segregated Mm -hmm. her kids are not in the magnet program so they're in the kind of gen ed program which is mostly black and brown kids and -hmm. then there's this magnet program that's largely white and and asian kids and and as kind of mixed race asian kids they don't really know exactly where they fit in i think it's been a challenge for her to figure out Mm -hmm. you know who's who am i friends with where are my where are my connections and she's kind of made some friendships in a bunch of different places but i think particularly coming out of the pandemic and a year of being virtual it's been it's been a real challenge but she at least has this kind of context to understand that this in-betweenness that she feels is going to be part of her identity for her whole life, that this is something that is there and that she can talk about it with her mom and with her little sister, uh, uh, Maya. And Maya just finished fifth grade and apparently had like the best year of her life and loved her school and loved all the kids there. And um, I'm assuming loved the fall festival, which is one of my favorite things she said. You know, I think a couple of other updates from Beth, she did say that, you know, the pandemic kind of put an end to a lot of the kind of advocacy work. So we left her at the end of five thinking about school closures. Her school did not get closed, fortunately, but a couple of other schools in the district did. But the advocacy opportunities really went away in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so now she's trying to find a way to kind of tap back in. And I did ask her, you know, does she feel like she really finally found a we at the elementary school where her kids went. And and she said she got really close. Oh, and again, nice. the pandemic was kind of, you know, sort of felt like she was on the cusp and then everybody had to not see each other anymore, which is just yet another way, one of the ways in which the kind of separation that the pandemic caused harmed so many people, you know, beyond just kind of the the, the obvious areas, these kind of relationships that didn't get to fully form and these relationships that were on the cusp and didn't actually get to get to happen. I think it's just another one of the one of the costs of the past couple of years. Yeah. Thank you, Beth. Yeah. She did say that they, as a family, continue to have daily conversations about race, about racial tensions, racism in schools, opportunities, meritocracy. Um, Mm. And Beth said her main goal is to provide kind of alternative narratives to what their Mm -hmm. eyes tell them, that even in the ways in which their schools are kind of replicating that, that if they can be having conversations at home that push back on those ideas Mm -hmm. and, as she says, complicate the narrative, show them that things are not necessarily what they appear to be, that they can start to see the kind of invisible context, that feels really important and that being in these school environments is what gives her the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Well, Thank you, Beth and Nadia and Maya, for sharing. Yes. Very open and honest and forthcoming with uh, difficult topics, and we certainly appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you for allowing me to revisit this with you. Yeah. No, it's been a, it's been a treat. It's been you know bittersweet to go back to these episodes with Courtney and Courtney's voice in them, and um, yeah. always hard to, to hear her and kind of remember all the things, but also been really nice to kind of think about this series that feels so relevant with so much work at the time, um, but yeah. also feels like still relevant in so many ways, but also great to have kind of your perspective as, as we think about, you know, becoming a more multiracial organization to kind of see, you know, how do, how do these things land? So really great. I appreciate for you, that. For you being here. You got it, friend. Yeah. Thank you, listeners. Let us know what you thought. Podcast at integratedschools.org. Hit us up on social media at Integrated Schools. I think we have one more bonus episode coming later in August that's going to be very exciting. And then yeah. we, we will be back in September, um, back to it for real. So um, thanks for sticking with us. And as we are getting ready for our new season, as always, we are grateful for your support. Patreon.com slash Integrated Schools. If you want to throw us a few bucks every month, we would appreciate it. Yes, please listen, share, grow, take your kids with you, have them listen. Um, This community needs you for its continued growth. Absolutely. It is a pleasure and honor to be in this with you. So try to know better and do better. Until next time. 
Did you guys eat your breakfast at that first day of school? Do you remember? It's horrible. It's horrible breakfast. Oh my god, everything Every is just horrible. cafeteria breakfast is horrible, horrible, horrible. I, I like the breakfast. <laughs> okay. It was good. Okay.